0: Okay, let's jump, let's jump into text. I hadn't intended to spend so much time on those pictures, but, you know, it just sense memories. So we're going to start back up in chapter 7. So far, in terms of uh, the, the failures of the disciples, they have failed to fast correctly, they don't, uh, and they failed to observe the Sabbath. And now we're going to see that they fail and that they don't wash their hands and, and I don't, don't use the word wash, say rinse, because it's not like they're washing their hands. It's ceremonial. You just pour, you know, you pour it over your hands. It's not, it's not like it's going to do anything. Your mother wouldn't, you know, go back and wash your hands. You know, she wouldn't, wouldn't stand for it. So let's look at um, seven. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem now, when you read that, there are other, other places where we see this. This is an investigative committee that's been sent from Jerusalem to see if Jesus is, you know, for the lack of a better word, kosher. Uh, their authority uh, exists in the fact that if, if um, for example, if Jesus is in, is in Capernaum uh, and he's doing something that they don't like, they can place a ban on Capernaum. They'll punish Capernaum. And so, so what's Capernaum going to do to Jesus? They kick him out, right? That's, that's the power. as I understand it, that's the power that they have. So if there's a city that's tolerating a false teacher, they put a ban on that city, and you're, you know, you're out of there. So, um, and we, we see them, you know, uh, pop their heads popping up in a couple of places in the Gospels, especially in John. So this investigative committee they gather around Jesus, and some of the disciples saw some of the disciples eating food with unclean, that is, ceremonially unwashed hands. Now, Mark almost never does this. He's gonna explain this to you. And if you've been listening to Mark, you know this is an exception. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, um, holding to the tradition of the elders. We talked about that, right? Moses and, okay, um, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washings of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So he's explaining to you: this is the context. Uh, these guys, because of the oral tradition, they've got all these Sabbath Thab, Sabbath observances. Jesus' disciples aren't following those. They um, all kinds of observances in terms of fasting. We talked about those. Jesus' disciples aren't following those. And then they have all kinds of clean and unclean observances in terms of rinsing your hands. And Jesus' disciples aren't following those either. So they are, I don't know if they're purposely doing it, but they are not following the tradition of the elders, which Jesus says are rules made by men. Um, So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live? Does anybody have walk?" Yeah, that's a more literal translation because it is the word walk. And it's a great example of the fact that Mark, he may write in Greek, but he thinks in Hebrew. Because uh, that's a whole field of, of in, in uh, Judaism, a whole field that's called, to, to walk is halak. And um, if you want to study how to live your life, it's, it's a te- series of teachings called the halakha. Halakhic, you'll hear it as an adjective sometimes too. And so uh, to, to walk is a metaphor of how you live. And uh, I wish NIV had done that because it's kind of a cool thing anyway because it reflects that Judaism. But, but if you're a translator, you realize that when he says to walk means to live and you do that to make it clearer. Those are the kind of choices that translators make. So why don't your disciples uh, walk? I just fixed it according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with unclean hands. He replied, and here we go. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules made by men. And I saw something today. You tell me if you think this is, I thought it was kind of cool. in, um, let's see, close by, I don't know if it's the chapter before or it's the chapter after, there's a reference to the very last verse in Malachi. This verse that he quotes in Isaiah is the very last verse in Isaiah. And it almost feels to me like Jesus is kind of summing up. Okay, because very shortly after Peter's confession, we have the final trip to Jerusalem. We are just about we're, we're, even though we're only chapter six, uh, the end is coming really quickly. You do know this, don't you, that um, the Gospels, uh, 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 um, uh, um, a third to a half of the Gospels are about the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, the, fully that last half of the Gospel of John is just the last week. And, and technically then to say the Gospels are biographies is not really accurate. Uh, the, the Gospels are a passion narrative with a long introduction basically is what they are. And uh, so, I don't know, maybe am I, am I reading too much into that, that all of a sudden Jesus is quoting the last verse from, from different books? I don't know. Maybe I am. Um, uh, you have let go of the commandments of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. Okay, do, do not roll your eyes. I see you. Do not roll your eyes at the Pharisees because we do the same thing. Right, we have these traditions and we put them before the scripture and, we, and they always have the same result. They make people think that it's all about them and, and doing the right thing as opposed to responding out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. The whole Christian walk is just a life of response and, and thanksgiving and gratitude for the fact that he's, he's, though we have a right to deserve nothing, he gives us everything. That's, where, that's how we make our choices and, and our, our walk. That's where our, our walk comes from. Um, not trying to keep all the rules that people keep piling up. They keep moving the target. It's a moving target, right? Just when you think you've, you know, you've obeyed all the rules, then they, they, they uh, up, up the ante and you're, uh, you're always going to come up short. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. And here here he goes, he's going to give an example of this idea of rules made by men. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. That's Exodus 20. That's one of the 10. Okay, that's not negotiable. And anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. That's uh, Deuteronomy 5. Um, But you say... Here's what they've added on to the law. Um, if you say, uh, but, but you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban. Korban is, a, is an innovation of the Pharisees. Now the word korban uh, exists, it's 80 times, I did my homework this morning, you're welcome. Uh, it exists 80 times in, in the Old Testament, and it originally means that this is so cool because this is what language does. This is what words do. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the word korban refers, refers to an offering that is reflective of your heart. Okay? Sacrificial offering that, that basically is sort of parabolically saying, I'm really offering you, I may, I may be offering you this. Bread or a dove or whatever the offering is, but it's really my heart that I'm offering, that kind of thing, right? By the time the Pharisees were done, the word korban means forbidden. See what they did? That's what they did. Um, Yeah, now it means forbidden, and, and specifically forbidden to be used for any other purpose. That's it. So I have this guitar. Okay, here's my guitar. And uh, my kids would love it for me to leave that to them when I die. They're already picking you know, what they want you know, when I kick the bucket. <laughs> and I, I say to them, no, that, that guitar is Corban. It's been dedicated to the church. When I die, it's gonna go to the church. Now, I can keep on playing it and using it, but it's dedicated, right? Well, people were doing that with the funds that they should have been using to take care of their parents. They still had them. It's not like they'd given them to the temple, but they had been dedicated to the temple. And so it was forbidden to use them, or for anyone else to use them. So, so they're, um, they've added these rules made by men, and in the process, they're going against the Ten Commandments. And uh, Jesus is calling them, calling them on it. Um, I don't know if I've quoted this to you, but uh, one of the wisest women I've ever known in my life was a woman named Dinah Smith. I wrote a song about her. And Dinah used to say, if the devil can't make you do wrong, he'll make you do right wrong. is brilliant? It's like Kierkegaard, right? If he can't make you do wrong, he'll make you do right wrong. And the Pharisees are, are uh, experts at that. So uh, whatever help you otherwise would have received from me is korban, that is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother, thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. That's technical. The oral law is something that we orally hand down, right? Um, And so you do many things like that. So he's basically calling them on it. So his disciples aren't rinsing their hands. Oh my goodness, see, that's unclean. And Jesus is going to go into a lengthy discussion in a minute about what Real uncleanness is all about. Again, Jesus called a crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand. So I think that's Shema. Okay, Shema. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. So he's gonna define the true nature of uncleanness. And he's talking to a group of people whose whole life is dedicated to defining uncleanness. And to them it's things like blowing out candles or the shadow of a leper passing over you. And once again, don't roll your, don't roll your eyes at, this, at these people. If you are committed to a works righteousness point of view, you better get it right. Right? If your salvation is based on these kinds of things, you better get it right. And the power that the Pharisees have is common people keep coming to them with questions. You know, what do I do about this or that? And they keep, with their oral tradition, they keep putting a fence. It's called putting a fence around the law. They keep moving it back and back and back until there's, you know, it's impossible. And Jesus is so mad. At, he says, You put this burden on people and you won't lift a finger to help them. Yeah. That's exactly what he's saying. Yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. And that, that's, the, that's, the, um, the, that's the conflict. See, the Pharisees are the back-to-the-Bible people, right? And what are they doing? They are adding uh, the, the oral tradition that's contradicting the Bible. Uh, uh, I was having a conversation with a uh, guy in Jerusalem one time, very friendly. He was an Orthodox, very friendly conversation. Uh, he walked up to me and he said, why are you here? You know, I said, I'm here because I love your people and I love, your, I love this country. And, uh, and we started talking and I, I, we, for, for some reason, I brought up Jeremiah. And he said, and he was kind of proud of this. He said, well, I can't tell you what Jeremiah says. I can tell you what the Talmud says about Jeremiah. <laughs> well, and, and, and with, with no awareness that, that was, there was a problem with that. Well, I can't tell you about Jeremiah, but I can tell you what the Talmud says. And he could r- rattle off for days what the Talmud says. But see, if the devil can't make you do wrong, he'll make you do right wrong. Now, how many people can't really comment on a passage of scripture, but they can tell you what Luther said about it, or Calvin said about it, right? Or or William Lane? Who said that? Okay, okay. Who said that? (laughs) Guilty as charged. Yeah. Okay, you're going to get an F in this class, young lady. I want you to go talk to the principal. Uh, Okay, now I've totally lost my place. I've been busted. Yes. Sure. Because this has come up a few times. So the disciples, Jesus is of course spending this time with him, with them dedicatedly because they're going to follow him. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're not Pharisees, yeah. But what I'm saying is they've been under that um, teaching or immersed in it by virtue of culture. Well, let me, let me take a stab at that, okay? Um, this is me talk, me and not the Lord talking. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are Galileans. Exactly. The Pharisees, by and large, that, that are confronted, we already heard, they've come from Jerusalem. So they are Judean Jews. There's a vast difference between the observances of Judean Jews and Galilean Jews. Not a vast difference, but there's a difference. And the Pharisees, their power base is really in Judea. And my guess is, and I think I could probably substantiate this from people like Josephus, that Galilean observance, no one's rinsing their hands in Galilee No one's doing these sorts of things. And the later rabbis, and that's why I'm I'm being cautious here, but the later rabbis showed a real disdain for Galilee. Uh, The Talmud says, O Galilee, Galilee, thou who hatest the Torah. So Galileans were looked upon as people who really hated the Torah. Now, that's not to say that there aren't pockets of observant Judaism in Galilee, okay? Some people take that too far and they say, O Galilee of the Gentiles, Jesus. There's a book called... uh, um, a something Jew, remember that it basically makes the case that Jesus was barely observant. I don't think that's true at all, not from the gospels. Well, I think they're following his lead, yet, yeah. I think they're following his lead. And the question is, we don't know. The question is, did Jesus say, Okay, I don't want to see any of you guys where it's in your hands because we don't do that, you know? I don't know. I just, I'm point zero nine. That's all I got, 0.09%. But my guess is, I think the, the, the quick and most sensible answer is, they're Galileans, they don't do this stuff. Um, one of the, I told you this before, one of the things that the Galileans do is they, they observe uh, Passover on Thursday instead of Friday because that's the diaspora tradition. When the Jews were dispersed, they would celebrate Passover on Thursday. Why? Just so they were sure they didn't do it too late. They do it a day early to make sure they didn't miss it. And that makes uh, the Passion Week make sense because Jesus and his disciples were having Passover while everyone else, the Judean Jews, are getting ready for Passover because they're going to have it the next night. Okay? And there's, uh, it's, it's, it's the only way to make that system, that, that system work. So, but my short answer is, my guess is, no, they're Galilean Jews. They, that level of observance, that's not, what we, that's not the way we do it in Galilee. I could be totally wrong, but that's, I think that's a, a fairly informed, but well-informed answer. I'm trying to think of some other examples of Galilee, uh, uh, but there, there are a lot of negative things that are said about Galileans. And you know what I'd like for it to be? Are we allowed that? Well, okay, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I would like for it to be that Jesus has been teaching them all of this time as we know, and part of what he has been teaching them is, this is what you're going to hear, this is what you're going to see, that this is the truth. Yep. Yeah, I, well, I, I think that's, that's as good an answer as my answer. She said she liked to think what Jesus, Jesus has been setting them an example and saying this is what we're gonna do. And um, yeah, I, I, I like that. I like that. Um, I had another example in my head, but I lost it. That's okay. Okay. Um, so uh, again, he called the crowd, listen, listen. Uh, yeah, nothing outside a man can make him unclean um, by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. And I would say this is an innovation. Jesus is innovating because the, the 90% position is it's stuff on the outside that makes you unclean. And Jesus goes, no, no, you've got it all wrong. It's stuff on the inside that makes you uh, unclean. So he's going to redefine for these, these people uh, contrary to everything that they think and believe, that true uncleanness is something that comes from the inside, which makes perfect sense to us. But this was a new idea to these guys who've been scrupulously trying to uh, not be unclean their whole lives. Uh, verse 17, after he had left the crowd entered the house, uh, after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable and you, you wouldn't think that that's a parable, but when this statement of uh, nothing outside of man makes it, that, they see that as a parable. A parable has a, there's a lot of things that can be concerned parabolic. Uh, Parabole, para means beside, bole means to throw, it's where we get our word ball from. A parable is something you throw down, beside something to make a point. So he just made this point about it being unclean, and then he made this statement It may not sound like a parable to us because there's no characters and there's no storyline, but it's still looked upon as a parable, as a wise saying, okay? Um, So they ask him about this parable. And here we see the emotional Jesus, okay? Even though there's no adjective here, you definitely see the emotionality of Jesus. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't read that in Sunday school voice. Are you so dull? No. He's irritated. Are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For if it doesn't go into his heart, it goes into his stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Little aside. Now stop. Let's think about this for a second. Who's the source of this gospel? What happened to Peter? Huh? Right, this is the guy who had the vision of the, net, of the sheet let down with all these kind of rise, Peter, kill and eat. Oh, I've never eaten anything unclean in my life. Don't call anything unclean that God has made clean. So that's the source of this statement is that guy. So uh, I, I think it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful sort of integration. Um, after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his just dis- oh, I already read that. Uh, he went on. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, this is called a chain saying, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. And if you look at that list, all of those sins begin in the imagination." Those are all sins of the imagination. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. So evil is what makes you unclean, not nonconformity. Let me say it one more time. Evil is what makes you unclean, not nonconformity. Because for the Pharisees, what, what makes you unclean? Not doing what we tell you to do not conforming. And Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. This is the true nature of of uncleanness. And again, these words make total sense to us, but the first hearers would have been really stretched, um, really stretched by this. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. Uh, Once again, remember we talked about the flow of the ministry, initial spike of popularity, and then a gradual erosion. I think in the next couple of chapters, we're gonna see that erosion because what we see, and I don't know if you've ever integrated this into your uh, understanding of Jesus' life, what we see is Jesus hiding. He's hiding. He's purposely staying away from Galilee. He's gonna go up to Tyre, which is about 20 miles north up on the coast, and when he's done here, Mark is going to describe his route. There's this circuitous route. He goes back down and around and back to the, he avoids Galilee and goes back to the 10 cities, back to the pagan side of the lake. He's keeping his presence a secret. Um, And I don't know about you, but I'm still working to integrate. That's not my Sunday school vision of Jesus. You know, But uh, he's trying to spend time with his disciples. He's trying to prepare them and and instruct them like we saw with his cycle of discipleship. The cycle of discipleship keeps going, right? And uh, it's it's an interesting, at least, at the very least, it's a very interesting phenomenon. And we have here again another example. There are two or three in the Gospels of a Gentile person who gets it in the midst of a bunch of Jewish people who don't get it. Uh, The other other great one is the Roman centurion uh, in Luke 7. I haven't seen such great faith in Israel, Jesus says. So this is another sort of parallel uh, story, the Syrophoenician woman. Uh, My note says, this is an unforgettable conversation. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit, came and fell at his feet. So not, you, know, you could write a whole book of people <laughs> who fall at his feet. So she falls at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon from her daughter. And we talked about this before, but when Matthew tells this story, you almost have Jesus talking to himself and saying, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. It's almost like this isn't part of the program but he will never uh, let someone who's hurting, you know, go on hurting. First let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. What a what an unbelievable thing for him to say this. No, don't, don't, don't take it this way. He is borrowing an image from her world. Okay? He's entering her world. Jews don't keep dogs. Dogs are unclean. Gentiles do. And the word here that's used for dog, it's a small dog, not necessarily a puppy, but a, a, the, little ta- the little dogs are in the house who are under the table who catch, you know, the, the dogs that the, ri- the rich old ladies have. Think of a, little, a dog like that, a little dog. He's using an image from her world. It's kind of neat, he's extending into her world. He's not calling her a dog. Okay, Trust me. So, um, so it wouldn't be right to, uh, to take the bread from the children's table and toss it to their little, their little dogs. Um, yes, Lord, she replied, because she's not offended at all by what he says. Right? Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And Jesus is delighted by this conversation, by the, the way she engages with him. Uh, Jesus told her for such a reply, you may go, you know, way to go sister. For such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. Now, do you see how that miracle is not the point of that story? It happens in absentia off stage. Do you see the absolute authority of Jesus? All he has to do is say, well, when you go home, the demon will have left her absolute authority in abs. He heals in absentia. He doesn't have to be there. Right. The miracle of this story is the faith of this woman. The miracle of this story is that there is a Gentile who understands uh, or intuits, I don't know how much she understands, but she certainly intuits, that she can ask him for something she doesn't deserve. And he's gonna give it to her. Why? Because she deserves it? Because she's been righteous and rinsed her hands and not spent on the Sabbath? No, because it's his nature. This is, he's reflecting the nature of his father who is uh, full of hessed. For such a reply, uh, and so she went home and found the child lying on the bed, uh, the demon gone. Then Jesus, uh, re- remembering how Jesus performed his miracles, this stands out too. Okay, here we go. Now we're entering some really interesting territory. Okay, not that the other hasn't been interesting, but this is... Uh, put, your, put your listening ears on, turn your radar on. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre, listen to this, he went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, down to the north part of the Sea of Galilee, and over to the region of the Decapolis. If you can trace this on your map. Uh, there's one, 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 of the gospels says he was purposely staying out of Galilee. There some people brought a man to him who was deaf and could hardly talk. Okay, that word for and could hardly talk, Megilolan, is a hypoxlegomena. This is the only place that word appears in the New Testament. Very interesting word. He's deaf and could hardly talk. The other place that this uh, very unusual word appears is in Isaiah 35 in the Greek translation of of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint. You're familiar with the Septuagint? In the uh, fifth century BC, there was a translation that was made, I think it was in Alexandria. Um, they translated the Old Testament into Greek and um, the rabbis actually loved it. They said Greek is the only other language that the Bible can be translated into. They love, they love Greek. And when you look at this passage, you'll, you, you'll, you'll see where I think Mark got this word. This is Isaiah 35, four. Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the deaths of the ears of those who can hardly hear will be unstopped. And the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. So this is a classic fulfillment of the coming of the Messiah, okay? But if we've been listening closely to the way Jesus does miracles, this is going to bother you. Because this is not how he does miracles, in general. We just saw him heal in absentia. Go home, she's well. Listen to what he does. Um, After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven, and with a deep sigh, and that word for deep sigh is the same word that Paul uses to describe the spirit that groans in us. Really cool word. With a deep sigh, he said to him, and there's Jesus' voice. Only in Mark do we hear his voice. That's Jesus speaking Aramaic. He said to him, and Mark's going to translate it for us, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone. We've come to expect that. But the more he did, the more they kept talking about it. That The messianic secret does not work. When you tell people don't tell, how can they not tell? Right? They always tell, and it usually means that Jesus' ministry is hampered as a result. There's no mystery to the messianic secret. There's a, it's very clear why he does it. Um, people were... Um, Jesus commanded them not to tell, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He's done everything well. He even makes the dumb, the deaf hear and the dumb speak. Um, so that's, that's an unusual healing. Now in the next chapter, we're going to see another unusual healing, and we'll look at that after the break. And that's where Jesus gradually, the man who's blind, he gradually heals him. I see people like trees walking around. That should bother you, because that's not how Jesus does miracles. These are two really unusual miracles, and there's a, there's a brilliant, I think, reason for, uh, for why, uh, why Jesus does them, especially so late, uh, so late in the ministry, okay? So let's, let's keep moving. Jesus feeding the 5,000, or the 4,000, the 4,000. During those days, what is that? That's a loose chronological connector. He's gonna he's gonna start. I just noticed this this morning. He's gonna start counting the days here in a little while. He'll say six days later. This he's starting to count. He's counting down to Jerusalem. But this is a story that is loosely uh, connected. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Oh, what a big surprise! Right. yeah, here is where we're going to get into the theme of bread. Um, we, have, we already had the feeding of the 5,000 in 630, but now we're going to have this, uh, this business of bread. In 7-2, they were eating bread with unwashed hands. Uh, what did the Syrophoenician woman talk about? Jesus talked about the bread, that, the crumbs of bread that fall from the table. Now we're going to have the feeding of the 4,000. And in 816, we're going to have a heated discussion about bread. So bread becomes sort of a, a theme here, a, sub, a subtext. Okay? So during those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I have compassion. And that's that same word we looked at before where you, he's moved. I'm moved. Uh, for the, I shudder for these people. They have already been with me three days and have had nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. So just don't read right over that. See how that really shows us his heart. He really cares about people. I mean, that's kind of a Southern thing. We really care that everybody's been fed and everybody's been taken care of. He wants to make sure, you know, they're okay. And he certainly has other things on his mind, but... Uh, He's he's caring for them. Um, His disciples answered, where in this remote place can we get enough bread to feed them? And there's another example of the disciple being somewhat rude, they talking back to him. How many loaves do you have, he asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves, and given thanks. And for this, mor- this morning, for the first time, I realized he prays twice. And he didn't do this to the feeding of 5,000. He prays over the bread, and then he prays again over the fish. I'd never seen that before. <clears throat> um, when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them. See, there's the other prayer. And told his disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven spheroi, seven hampers, seven man-sized baskets. We looked at this last night, if you remember. Feeding of the 5,000, uh, we have 12 kofinas, 12 little lunch pails, So the the, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is perfect provision. All those people eat, they only can find 12 little basketfuls so the disciples are perfectly provided for. The feeding of the 4,000, completely different place, completely different time, completely different result. The point of the feeding of the 4,000 is abundance. Seven humongous baskets. A basket that's big enough to hold a person that are full of, uh, of, uh, of the leftovers and kofinos is the word for the little basket, and spheros is the, 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 the word for the, the big baskets. Um, about 4,000 men were present. Matthew 15 adds, besides women and children, so you can add probably another 10,000 people. Um, and having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples, and went to the region of Dal, Dalmanutha, and we're not really sure exactly where that is. We think it's close to Magadon or, or Magdala, where Mary, Mary, Mary Magdala was from. It's on the shore of the Sea Galilee, okay? It's actually right at the bottom of that, remember I pointed out that big hill to you, the Arbel? It's right at the bottom of that hill. Um, okay, I'm lost. Okay, there we go, I'm, I'm back. Um, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. So they're no longer, they've changed their tactics. Their original tactics is, we're going to find you violating the oral uh, oral tradition. That's not working, right, (laughs) obviously. Um, So now we're going to ask for a sign from heaven. Now, the word for sign, this is an example. They're not contradictory, but they're just used somewhat differently. In John, the word sign, Simeon, is kind of positive. It's a positive thing. In Mark, it's more of a negative thing. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Uh, to ask for a sign is a symbol of that you're harboring disbelief. It's like, I need a sign, you've got to pr- you gotta prove it, okay? And we, we, we will see later that the, one of the fundamentals of the Gospel of John, I mean Mark, sorry. One of the fundamentals of the Gospel of Mark, which comes to us through Peter, is that Jesus is looking for disciples who are willing to believe without seeing. You know, Peter says, though you have not seen him, yet you still believe and are filled with his glorious and inexpressible joy. That's Petrine, that's a very very much the way Peter remembers Jesus' uh, value system or Jesus' ministry. And so the Pharisees asking for a sign is a bad thing. But the use of the word sign in, in John is not, doesn't have that negative association. That doesn't mean they're, they're contradicting each other. That's just the way language works. What does cleave mean? What does the word cleave mean? It means to stick two things together and it means to cut two things apart. That's just how words work. Right, that's just how words work. Um, so the Pharisees uh, came and began uh, to question Jesus to test him. They asked for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply, and I have a line going over to uh, when he when he uh, healed the man uh, who was deaf. He also sighed deeply. Then, so the cumulative evidence is whew, he's. He's getting tired. He's, he's stressed. He's sighing deeply. Oh, come on, guys. So he sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? Here's frustration. I tell you the truth, no sign will be given. Then he left um, and went back into the boat and crossed to the other side. You get the, you get the feeling of them cross, Chris and crossing the lake. Now, uh, Luke lets us know that he's uh, going to, both Matthew and and Luke say no sign but the sign of Jonah that gets added by um, Luke and Matthew. And what's the sign of Jonah? Even as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, Jesus is going to be in the bowels of the earth for three days and three nights. That's the only sign you're going to get. And of course, they don't believe that sign either. Why? Because people who ask for signs don't believe them when they come. That's the nature of a person who demands a sign. There's a predisposition to not believe. That's why Jesus is looking for people who are willing to believe without seeing. That's how faith works, okay? Um, Okay, calm down. (laughs) I'm sorry. Okay, here here we come back to the theme of bread. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Yeast in Judaism is a sign of corruption. It's a negative thing. When you have a, a Passover, one of the games that you play with the children is that you hide a little package of yeast in the house. That's unleavened bread, right? Bread with no yeast. Yeast is a sign of, a sign of sin because yeast works like sin works. You get a little bit, and it'll work through the whole, whole batch. And one of the games that we, you, you play during Passover is you hide some and the children have to look for it. It's like hide and seek it, yes, except with a little package uh, of yeast. Now in, in, uh, in, the, in the other synoptics, I think particularly in Matthew, uh, yeast is not used quite as negatively. Uh, it's compared with a, a mustard seed. Yeast is a small thing, and it has big results, like a mustard seed that has, that's very small and has big results. So it's not necessarily always a bad sign, but uh, in Judaism in general, yeast is, uh, is a symbol of corruption because it works like sin works. So he tells them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. And what's the yeast of the Pharisees? Disbelief. Disbelief. They discussed this with one another and said, is it because we have no bread? So we're back to bread. Um, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? And I think he's frustrated again. Maybe that's just me. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And that verse explains. Those two odd healings. The two odd healings are parables. They really happened, but they're parabolic in nature. The first is of the gradual, of of, of the opening of the mouth of a man who can barely talk. That's the disciples. In a minute, we're going to see the healing of the blind man, the gradual healing. He can barely see men like trees walking around, and then he can finally see It's a parable of the gradual opening of the eyes of of, uh, the disciples. And those two odd, Mark is the only person who tells us those stories. And in the middle, in the exact middle between those stories is Jesus looking at the disciples and saying, you got ears, but you can barely hear. You got eyes, but you can barely see. And uh, it's it's an elegant, it's an elegant thing. So Mark is not the, the bare bones guy that sometimes people say he is. And Yeah. You wonder if it's a little, like a call to us, you know, we're, we're if we're a lady in church, you gradually wake up. You know, you just sort of start hearing, you, your eyes start getting used, such as Don, so it may be a call to remind us that God can even get us to figure it out. Absolutely, George. We're, I mean, our eyes are gradually opening and our ears are gradually, yeah, we, we are them. Do not roll your eyes at the disciples. Don't you let me see you roll your eyes at the disciples because we're exactly like they are. You know, um, and I think it's actually part of the faithfulness of God. He's, I, he's opening our eyes. You know, I see things, I'm 62. I've been a Christian since I was eight. And my eyes are still opening. I'm seeing things I never saw before. How cool is that? You know, what if you just bam, were made perfect then you had to live the rest of your life that way? That wouldn't, that wouldn't be fun at all. But no, he's showing us new things about himself every day. And especially as I look in the lives of other people, I mean, since I've been here, um, I, I, I observe, I watch you guys, and and I, I learn things. I hear things from you, and I it's it's just wonderful. That's how the body works, right? We're we're uh, iron, iron sharpening iron, that sort of thing. Okay, where was I? Yeast, beware the yeast. Is because we have no bread. Okay, I'm back. Um, now, okay, now Jesus is going to recap the two miraculous feedings. And so if you had any doubts or any questions about my interpretation of those two miracles, this is Jesus' interpretation. okay? And he will use the two different words for baskets that are used in the two different stories. And this is the hint to us that that's the key because Jesus, even Jesus uses those words. Um, say, and don't you remember, he said, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many kofenoi? How many little baskets of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for you, for the 4,000, how many spheroid? I'm not saying that right, of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Guys, (laughs) come on. And now we have the this, this second miraculous healing that, that fits into this. Usually I'll, I'll, I'll do those two healings and then we'll read the middle part, but I just didn't want to do that this time because you're smart enough, you can, you can follow, follow along. So here we go. They came to Bethsaida, which is up on the north of the lake right down from Capernaum. So they're, on, they're back on the north tip of the lake. They've come out of the, the 10 cities and, and uh, they're back in Jewish, the Jewish world. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man And begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village, which is just what he did with the deaf man, right? He takes him out. He's not doing this to, to gain followers. I thought about this with the demoniac. You know, when the demoniac wants to go with Jesus, if you're just trying to raise a bunch of followers, this is the guy you want right? Hey, come see what we can. Look at the chains. These are the chains that this guy broke. This guy's with us now, right? And you get the crowds. Jesus never does anything like that. In fact, he says, whatever you do, don't tell anybody. Please, let's keep a lid on this. That's what he's trying to do. Let's keep a lid on this because, you know, it could, it could very easily explode. So he takes this blind man, he takes him outside of the village. When he'd spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, he asked, do you see anything? Now that should bother you. What do you mean? This is a guy who heals people in absentia. You know? And now he's, do you see anything? Did he not use enough spit? Did he, you know, really, you see what I'm saying? This is, un- if we've been listening to the way that he does his miracles, this is unusual. And the point is, the point I just made with the gradual opening of the eyes of the disciples, okay? Um, so do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees. So there's a clue that he wasn't blind from birth because he knows what trees look like. Okay. So they see, I see people, they look like trees. So he's being progressively healed. His eyes are gradually being opened. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Same kind of idea. Let's keep a lid on this. Okay. Well, we're doing great on... Great old time. Um, Actually, I wanna stop here and do some questions because I I wanna hit Peter's confession uh, fresh. Do I? No, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. I'm sorry to not be just so slick and and totally organized. I'm I'm just not that guy, I'm juggling lots of things here. So let's look at Peter's confession. Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. You just saw pictures of Caesarea Philippi, right? Beautiful uh, waterfalls and the water coming out from underneath Mount Hermon. Uh, it's absolutely gorgeous place. Uh, there's a community up on the mountain, top of the mountain, of the Druze. Uh, if you don't know about the Druze, they are a fascinating group of people. Uh, but we don't have time to talk about them. Uh, Google them. Google them. Um, so they're the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? Now remember, we've just seen that the disciples' eyes are gradually being opened. Okay, so who do people say that I am? Now they're gonna reply with the same sort of lame list that we heard back at the story, uh, uh, the back of the story with, uh, with Herod. Um, they replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. Yeah, six four. If you look back at six, six fourteen. I'm sorry, that's the same list as there with that story about Herod. It, interesting to me. In one of the lists, they think he's Jeremiah, which I think is interesting that they would think he's Jeremiah. And we're about to see Elijah, so you know, hold hold on to your hats. <laughs> but what about you? He said, and listen to the question. Who do you say I am? And Peter's not going to directly answer the question. Peter's not going to say, "We say you are." Peter's going to say, "You are." And the point is that this is—he's speaking from Revelation, and Jesus is going to bless him and say, "That man didn't show that you God did." Okay. And um, Jesus, uh, Peter's response: "You're the Christ. You're the Messiah." Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So there's no way to go, Peter. You finally get it. You're my guy. Okay, remember that's, that's the first part of this. Remember the, the table of contents, verse one? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, the Son of God. That, the, the verse one of Mark is the table of contents. We just hit the, the, the absolute core heart of the gospel. Peter's confession is right in the middle. Mark is a gospel that is structured around confession. Okay, So in fact this is only the second time the word Christ has even come up. It was in verse one and then Peter just said it. I did that. I did my homework this morning and looked that up. The, the word Messiah or Christ hasn't even happened yet until now. In terms of being spoken. Okay, so now, now that it's been spoken, of course people have been suspicious that that's what's going on all along because the lame are leaping like deer, the blind see and the dumb talk and, and, uh, and the poor having the good news preached to them. But now that it's been spoken, Jesus has to undeceive them. It's like deprogramming a mooney, Right? They have to be undeceived Because they have a whole range of misconceptions about what the Messiah, about who the Messiah is, that he's going to be a king, that he's going to be a warrior. Um, And today in Judaism, it's interesting to see that all the different ideas. Some people think it's not even a person, it's an age. Some people think the Messiah is really going to be two people. Uh, one, one person taught that Hezekiah was actually the Messiah and it, all, it di- and it didn't work. There's all kinds of teaching about the Messiah, okay? But Peter has, has said it and Jesus said, don't, t- don't tell anyone, and look at verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. That is what it means to be the Messiah. That suffering is what it means. Now, there are a lot of passages in the Old Testament called the suffering servant of the Lord passages, correct? The Pharisees all said, that's us. We're the suffering servants of the Lord. It makes no sense that that should be the Messiah, right? That's crazy. The Messiah doesn't suffer. He comes and wipes the Romans out and reigns, and he's a glorious king. What, are you stupid? So Jesus has to undeceive them. Now it's been said that he's the Messiah, He's gonna explain to them what it means to be the Messiah. He must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, that he must be killed, and when he says that, they stop listening, and after three days rise again. Every bit of evidence shows they never heard that, because when he said killed, they stopped listening. And we probably would have too. And if you imagine someone telling you some shocking news and then they keep talking, it's like, wah, 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 wah. You don't hear what they say. Because for, the evidence is gonna show from now on there is no expectation he's gonna raise from the dead. There is zero expectation after Jesus is crucified. Absolutely zero expectation. You don't get Easter unless you get this. The women go to the tomb to anoint a dead body no one heard and rise on the third day and even when they heard when the women come back and said he's been risen what do the disciples say just a bunch of delirious women peter and john go to check it out there is absolute zero expectation that he'd be raised from the dead no one heard him say this in fact in a minute they're going to argue about uh, amongst themselves what rising from the dead might mean because it can't mean rising from the dead so I wonder what that means, right? You'll see. Because the Son of Man must suffer things. Um, and after three days rise again, he spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This is never going to happen to you. And I think only Jesus and Peter are close enough. Peter's the only one who ever says no to him. And now he's rebuking him. Okay, I don't think anybody else does that when Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter. Out of my sight, Satan, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. What got left out of that discussion? The blessing. Remember, Peter is the source of this story. When Peter walks on the water, that gets left out. When Jesus blesses Peter, that gets left out. The curse is there, but the blessing is left out. See, that's when we listen to what a book doesn't say. Remember? Okay. And what does that speak of? I think that speaks of the humility of Peter. He's not gonna talk about that. He messed up, and he wants you to know how he messed up. Um, Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So if this is what it means to be the Messiah, this is what it means to be a disciple of the Messiah, right? To be the Messiah means to be crucified. To be a follower of the Messiah means to take up your cross and follow him. And, and believe me, they are completely, you know, dumbfounded by this discussion. This hasn't come up yet, right? This hasn't come up yet. Must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me in the gospel will save it. Radical reversal, upside down kingdom. Um, what good is it for man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his, his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me, and I've stopped there. Imagine being ashamed of Jesus. Why would you be ashamed of Jesus? Well, he was a criminal who was crucified. And in my context, as a Roman reader of this document, I've got lots of reasons to be ashamed of Jesus. I've got a whole, I've got my family wanting me to be ashamed of Jesus and deny him. And uh, I, I, for, I, I circled that. I've never been so struck by the fact that he said that, if we're ashamed of him. But the truth is, a lot of people were ashamed of him. Maybe people still are ashamed of him. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels and we're going to we're we're going to see a long unpacking of the second coming and how Jesus understands that in just a few uh few verses okay